I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. I strongly believe that appointing a special counsel at this time is the right thing to do. Is it? The extraordinary circumstances presented here demand it. Do they? Hmm. I think they might. Or they might not. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Let's talk about it, shall we? I got the feeling that something ain't right. You know what I mean? I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. I am... From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Rochester, New York on WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WMHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's. AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets for your listening convenience. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square Radio, and Detour Talk Blanketing. Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow... Says me from bradblog.com. Your mileage may vary. Welcome to the Bradcast. It is our last one before standing down for the Thanksgiving holiday this week. And we've got not one, but two of my favorite guests standing by to join us momentarily. And I think they might disagree with each other. So that's kind of cool. But it was yet again another very busy news weekend and I uh, and, and the start of an already busy news week, frankly, it seems. So I want to hit a couple of important headlines very quickly before we get to my guests. As of Monday morning, officials in Indonesia reported that a powerful magnitude 5.6 earthquake struck the main island of Indonesia on, on uh, Monday, killing at least... 160 people when I last checked, injuring hundreds, shaking tall buildings in the capital, Jakarta, 60 miles away. It caused the collapse of hundreds of buildings as well as landslides that prevented many people from reaching the city's main hospital, which was itself damaged and had lost power, according to government officials who say the disaster is, quote, overwhelming. Closer to home, another mass shooting over the weekend at Another LGBTQ nightclub in what appears to be yet another in a string of recent Republican-inspired hate crimes. That uh, shooting killed five people and more than uh, and injured more than two dozen. Before the gunman who reportedly opened fire with a semi-automatic long rifle and a handgun, 
had entered and started firing immediately upon entering the club late on Saturday night. The massacre took place at Club Q, characterized by patrons as a refuge for the LGBTQ community in Colorado Springs, Colorado, a hub of GOP Christian nationalism in the state. The alleged shooter... A 22-year-old man was charged on Monday with five counts of murder and five counts of um, bias-motivated crime causing bodily injury after the mass shooting was ended, uh, cut short as the man was subdued by two patrons at the club, which held regular drag queen nights. The uh, Republican Party has been targeting, of course, the LGBT community and specifically the drag community in recent months with transphobic hate speech and, yes, even legislation against them. But, yes, the bad guy with two guns was stopped by at least two guys without guns on uh, late on Saturday night, some of those who attempted to subdue the shooter were themselves killed or injured. And while we are still learning more about the alleged shooter and his motive, apparently the same man a year and a half ago threatened his mother with a homemade bomb, forcing neighbors and surrounding homes to evacuate while the bomb squad and crisis negotiators talked him into surrendering. Despite the scare, there is no public record that prosecutors move forward with any charges against him or that police or relatives even tried to trigger Colorado's red flag law that would have allowed authorities to seize the weapons and ammo uh, that the man's mother says he had with him. Colorado's El Paso County, which is home to Colorado Springs, is said particularly hostile to red flag laws, joining some 2,000 counties nationwide in declaring themselves, quote, Second Amendment sanctuaries. They passed a resolution in 2019 saying that red flag laws, quote, infringe upon the inalienable rights of law-abiding citizens by ordering police to, quote, forcibly enter premises and seize a citizen's property with no evidence of crime. The horrific incident, unfortunately, would seem to be yet another example, which may mesh with my uh, conversation coming up with my guests momentarily regarding our former president, an example of what happens when criminals are not held accountable for their crimes before things get really out of hand. And uh, back overseas very quickly over the weekend, a landmark uh, moment as the uh, nations of the world, for the first time, decided to help pay for the damage and uh, that uh, that overheating the world is inflicting now on poor countries in a long-sought so-called loss and damage fund requiring wealthy nations who benefited from the use of cheap and dirty fossil fuel energy to help developing nations who are not responsible for our climate crisis, nonetheless, are facing the brunt of it to survive the uh, worsening emergency. Is that a fair way to describe it, Desi Doyen? That is an excellent way to describe in very, very short number of words <laughs> all that happened at COP27 well, over the last 22 weeks. Actually, so. uh, actually, there was more. And if we have time at the end of the show, I, I, I want to talk more about it with you. But yes. there was actually one. The agreement uh, comes at the end of these marathon climate talks in Egypt at right. uh, the uh, COP27. But the unanimous agreement did not include a statement addressing the 
root cause of climate-related disaster, which is the burning of fossil fuels, because there was a couple of just a couple of nations that uh, blocked that part of the agreement. Uh, I think those nations were Saudi Arabia, uh-huh. Russia, uh-huh. and Nigeria. Huh. Basically, countries that are benefiting from producing oil and are not interested in cutting it down anytime soon. As time allows, Des, hopefully we'll uh, have a few more thoughts on that near the end of today's program. That's a big if because we've got a lot to get to today on Friday as we continue to seek accountability for the most criminally corrupt public official, perhaps of all time in the U.S., much less one who actually served as president of the United States. On Friday, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that he would be appointing a special counsel to take over two of the major investigations that are being carried out by the DOJ of disgraced, twice-impeached former President Donald Trump. The announcement followed Trump's own announcement on Tuesday night that he had filed to become a candidate for the 2024 presidential election for some reason. Many believe he had done that in the hopes of avoiding accountability for these federal probes regarding his incitement of the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the Capitol, a deadly last-ditch effort by Trump to prevent the peaceful transfer of power after all of his previous attempts to steal the 2020 election had failed, and the more recent probe into Uh, thousands of pages of classified documents and presidential records that he stole from the White House upon leaving office and stored at his Mar-a-Lago Beach Club in Palm Beach, Florida, uh, along with the apparent obstruction of that particular investigation by Donald Trump. Here's the attorney general on Friday announcing uh, that a special counsel would be appointed. The Department of Justice has long recognized that in certain extraordinary cases, it is in the public interest to appoint a special prosecutor to independently manage an investigation and prosecution. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election, and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Such an an appointment underscores the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters. It also allows prosecutors and agents to continue their work expeditiously and to make decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. Today, I signed an order appointing Jack Smith to serve as special counsel. The order authorizes him to continue the ongoing investigation into both of the matters that I have just described and to prosecute any federal crimes that may arise from those investigations. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Most recently, Mr. Smith served as a chief prosecutor for the special court in The Hague charged with investigating and adjudicating war crimes in Kosovo. Mr. Smith will begin his work as special counsel immediately. Throughout his career, Jack Smith has built a reputation as an impartial and determined prosecutor who leads teams with energy and focus to follow the facts wherever they lead. As special counsel, he will exercise independent prosecutorial judgment to decide whether charges should be brought. I strongly believe that the normal processes of this department can handle all investigations with integrity. And I also believe that appointing a special counsel at this time is the right thing to do. 
The extraordinary circumstances presented here demand it. That was Attorney General Merrick Garland on Friday announcing the special appointment of a uh, uh, announcing the appointment of a special counsel to investigate uh, Donald Trump in those two major investigations that have been underway for a while by the DOJ. His announcement, Garland's, on Friday has been met with a variety of responses, however, from the legal community, the the legitimate legal community, not the far right Republican legal circuit defending any and all crimes by the former president, but from respectable attorneys on both sides of the issue of whether a special counsel should have been uh, appointed here. Some who believe uh, that the appointment was the right thing to do um, uh, disagree with others who believe that uh, Joe Biden's appointed attorney general has more than enough evidence to proceed as is with indictments without invoking the special counsel statute, without turning it over to a special counsel, no matter how well respected Jack Smith may be regarded as a career prosecutor and a non-political appointee to the Department of Justice. On Friday, when Merrick Garland made his announcement, constitutional law expert and friend of the show, John Boniface of the nonprofit, nonpartisan good government group, freespeechforpeople.org, well, he was outraged, declaring on Twitter, quote, Attorney General Garland has more than one and a half years, has had more than one and a half years to name a special counsel to investigate Trump. It is not credible that he was unaware during that time frame that Trump and Biden might run again. So if he thought it was necessary, why wait until now, asked John. John Bonfaz is one of our uh, longtime favorite guests. He's the co-founder and president of freespeechforpeople.org and is just one of our guests today. Oh, Mr. Bonfaz, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Thank you for having me back, Brad. Also on uh, Friday, but... Actually, that morning, prior to Garland's announcement in his Sidebars blog newsletter, another longtime friend of the show, Randall D. Eliason, a law professor at D.C.'s George Washington University Law School and a former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, where he served as chief of the public corruption and government fraud section. Well, Randall published an article headlined, Mr. Attorney General, it's time to appoint a special counsel, arguing that both the DOJ regulations and the public interest demand it. Randall D. Eliason, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. Glad to be back. I'm uh, happy to be joined by both of you, frankly, both esteemed experts today. Uh, John Bonfast, we had you scheduled to join us uh, as of last week after launching your TrumpIsDisqualified.org campaign regarding uh, free speech for people's efforts over the past year or two to bar uh, other elected officials who also participated in Trump's January 6th insurrection from being able to qualify in on the uh, 2022 ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in the Constitution. We will get to that uh, with you in a bit. But since uh, booking you, of course... Uh, to discuss that effort and uh, Trump's eligibility under the 14th Amendment, all of this came up. And so I want to we've you know, we've we've had the news about Garland appointing Jack Smith as special counsel in those two major cases. Um, and I know that you, along with other esteemed members of the legal uh, community, including Harvard Law School's Lawrence Triber, actually opposed to what he did in appointing that special counsel in, in this particular case. Why is that, John Boniface? 
Well, I'll just speak for myself and, and our organization, Free Speech for People, on this matter. I can't speak for Lawrence Tribe or others, but what I can say is that when we look at the question of whether or not Merrick Garland is credible on this, mm-hmm. we really have to ask a series of other questions. Was it credible that from the time that Merrick Garland took this position that he's done nothing to hold Donald Trump accountable for the 10 different incidents of obstruction of justice that Robert Mueller laid out in his report Mm -hmm. with respect to the Russian investigation. Was it credible that Merrick Garland has apparently done nothing to hold Donald Trump accountable for the conspiracy to defraud the United States with respect to the indictment that was presented to his former attorney, Michael Cohen, for which he pled guilty mm-hmm. before the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York, and for which Donald Trump was named Individual One in that conspiracy to violate campaign finance laws and defraud the United States. Uh, and, and is it credible for the Attorney General, with all that evidence that he had from the moment he took this office, to then say before the American public earlier this year that no one is above the law and that he's going to carry that out. Well, if you look at the appointment of this special counsel, there's no jurisdiction for this special counsel to investigate Donald Trump for the obstruction of justice he committed that Robert Mueller identified Mm -hmm. during the Russian investigation. There's no mandate or jurisdiction for this special counsel to investigate Donald Trump for the crimes he committed that Michael Cohen went to jail for, and for which he was individual one directing that conspiracy. So why is it credible to believe that a special counsel was needed now? He's basically confirmed by saying that, you know, I need a special counsel to investigate this now presidential candidate, Mm -hmm. that that he's not going to hold Donald Trump accountable for any of what I've just cited for the obstruction of justice, for the conspiracy to fraud the United States. And there's no basis for him to just completely give him a, a, a blank uh, ticket out mm-hmm. on that. Uh, but that's essentially what's happened here. So then we get to the point that he's made this appointment a year and a half after he took the office of attorney general. He's not named those crimes that Donald Trump's been credibly accused of for this special counsel, and he's focused on this idea that now we need a special counsel after a year and a half for holding this former president accountable for potentially uh, the role he played in the inter- insurrection or potentially uh, the, the Mar-a-Lago and the stealing of the documents case. But, you know, when it came to the brutal attack on Paul Pelosi, the Speaker's husband, the Justice Department moved swiftly within a matter of days to indict that individual who, who mm-hmm. engaged in that brutal attack. And they did so, allegedly, according to news reports, because they wanted to make clear that this kind of political violence is prohibited and will be strictly uh, enforced against it with respect to the rule of law. That same level of urgency needs to apply to Donald Trump. He has incited this insurrection. He's continuing to incite political violence in this country. He's now running for president again as a dangerous threat to the republic, and yet 
and yet somehow there's no level of urgency mm. uh, for that. So for all those reasons, I, I, it is not credible now to believe that we need a special counsel. What's more credible is for Merrick Garland to have announced indictments uh, last week, but that that obviously hasn't happened. So it's uh, it sounds like it's less a matter of disputing the the special counsel to provision here. It's just that you have come to not trust at this point uh, Merrick Garland based on his what you see as previous uh, failures to bring accountability uh, for the other items you mentioned for those ten uh, obstruction of justice counts that uh, Robert Mueller, the previous special counsel, had laid out uh, and so forth. Am I am I understanding that correctly that it's it's really just a lack well, of not I mean, trusting if, if him. Merrick Garland had decided the day he took uh, the attorney general uh, position mm-hmm. that he was going to appoint a special counsel then, we would have been very much applauding that decision because what we called for was something similar when he took that position, was to set up an independent task force to investigate all mm-hmm. of the potential crimes Donald Trump has committed, and we saw no movement on that whatsoever in his first year in that position. And now... You know, now, now we're led to believe uh, nearly two years after the insurrection that we need a special counsel because Donald Trump has announced that he's uh, going to be running for president again, when in fact everyone knew he was planning for that and everybody's known Joe Biden's planning for that. So it's just not credible, the claims he's making for why now there mm-hmm. needs to be a special counsel, we're- building off of the lack of credibility based on his track record of failing to hold Donald Trump accountable for these other crimes. Randall Eliasson, uh, you worked uh, many years as a, as a prosecutor at the Department of Justice. Um, so I'm wondering, in response to uh, John's thought there, I know you disagree with him that it, it was overdue, uh, long overdue time to appoint a special counsel. Uh, what What is the A, what is the basis, as you see it, for uh, Garland's appointment of Jack Smith? And, and why is John Bonifaz wrong there, as you see it? Yeah, well, there was a lot there. Um, so I start from the premise that we have the regulations that provide for special counsels when the Department of Justice has a conflict of interest. And it's hard to imagine a starker conflict of interest than uh, the Department of Justice for one president investigating someone who's now sort of automatically one of the front runners mm-hmm. in to be the opponent of that president in the next presidential election. Mm-hmm. So I do think there was a difference in kind. Investigating when he's a, just a political figure is one thing, but once he actually formally announced his candidacy, I do think that changed the circumstances that does explain uh, Merrick Garland's decision and actually make it the right one. Um, because, like I said, you can't really imagine a more clear conflict than Biden's attorney general being in charge of the investigation of one of Biden's lead potential rivals. So I, I do think the decision made sense and I just disagree in general with, with the characterization of Merrick Garland and the way he's been, uh, you know, doing the job. I mean, and, and I don't understand the idea that this is somehow a benefit to Donald Trump. That somehow, I'm not sure what John is suggesting, that, that Merrick Garland is now trying to sort of duck this case or, or get rid of it by giving it to a special counsel. Special counsels are not a benefit for the person under investigation. And I think if you go ask anybody who's been subject to a special counsel investigation or an independent counsel investigation, they'll say, that's not a good thing. Now you've got one seasoned prosecutor whose only job is to look at you. And they don't have to be distracted by the hundreds of other things that Merrick Garland has on his plate. I actually don't see this as a good development for Donald Trump. Uh, And if anything, it's a sign of just how seriously 
Merrick Garland takes these potential allegations. You don't bring Jack Smith back from The Hague and set up an entire special counsel's office mm-hmm. if you're not serious about trying to pursue these cases as far as they can go and putting someone you know, very serious in charge of doing that. So, I mean, I, I just have a very general big-picture disagreement with, with John about the way Merrick Garland has been doing his job. But then I also think that this actual declaration of candidacy was a uh, kind of a bright line that did justify this decision. Although I wouldn't have objected if he had done it a year and a half ago either. I well, mean, that's I think he could also justify it then. But that's not a reason not to do it now, and well, it doesn't provide any benefit for Trump to do it now. So I, I really don't see that as an argument against it that he also could have done it earlier. And I want to ask John about that in a second. If he if he believes that somehow this is a benefit to Trump, but Randall, uh, you hit on it. Obviously, I mean, it came as a surprise to absolutely nobody that Donald Trump was you know wanted to run in 2024. That's something Marilyn Garland, Merrick Garland would have known a year and a half ago. With that in mind. If he did think that the special counsel statute was triggered here, shouldn't he have done so? Shouldn't he have appointed that uh, Jack Smith or anyone else as special counsel just upon uh, taking office, essentially, uh, uh, under Joe Biden? Like I said, I think you could make that argument, and I don't think it would have been unreasonable to do it earlier. Mm -hmm. I also don't think it's unreasonable to say, yeah, Trump says a lot of things, so he might be talking about running. We don't know for sure if he'll run or not. As long as he's just a political leader out there, there's no conflict of interest significant enough for the Department of Justice to turn this over to a special counsel. But once he actually does formally declare his candidacy, mm-hmm. I do think that's a difference in kind, that even if you uh, didn't think it was necessary before, now for the public perception to make sure that there's not even a potential appearance that what's really going on here is Biden's attorney general is trying to take out his chief political rival – but now it really does make sense to do this. John Boniface, speaking to Randall's critique there, do you believe that this somehow benefits Donald Trump to have a special counsel appointed this late in the game? I want to be clear. The benefit that Donald Trump has received from the Department of Justice is that by now there's not been an indictment. By now there's been no vigorous effort to hold him accountable for the crimes that were clearly laid out at the point at which Merrick Garland assumed the position. I appreciate, you know, the arguments Randall's made, but none of it addressed what I talked about with respect to the obstruction of justice laid out in the Mueller report and, and all of the effort that was made to ensure that the Mueller investigation would be protected by so many various scholars and advocacy groups, including ourselves, you know, once he put forward that report, the argument was made, and, and we have a dispute about this uh, as to whether or not the policy of the Department of Justice is correct, that a sitting president cannot be indicted. But the argument was made, we can't be indicted while he's a sitting president, but he could certainly be held accountable after he's out of office. He's a private citizen, and there was no reason to not move forward and hold him accountable for those obstruction of justice crimes. I also heard nothing with respect to addressing the other very well-laid-out crime uh, of defrauding the United States and committing various campaign finance law violations Mm -hmm. for which his former attorney, Michael Cohen, went to federal prison for. So, again, you know, the record is, is there for anyone to see that Donald Trump has been benefited by this attorney general, by this Justice Department, for not being held accountable 
for those crimes. And if he's not being held accountable for those crimes, why should we believe that he now will be held accountable for these crimes? But there's another important point to be made here. This is not, you know, your standard run-of-the-mill kind of investigation that needs to take place without any clock ticking on it. Mm-hmm. This is akin, in, in what I tried to emphasize, to why the Justice Department was correct in moving so swiftly within days and indicting the person who brutally attacked Paul Pelosi, because you want to make clear to anyone else that the law will be aggressively enforced against you if you engage in that political violence. And that was the message that they hoped to send, and that was what was reported very quickly in, in various different news outlets, is that's why they moved so quickly to indict that individual who attacked Paul Pelosi. For the same reason, there needed to be urgency from day one of this Attorney General's uh, uh, oversight of the Department of Justice that they were going to move swiftly in holding Donald Trump accountable for all the crimes he has committed, and we've not seen that. And what we're facing now is a situation where this special counsel may or may not indict, but whenever that happens, a trial will most likely not happen until the earliest 2024, and the appellate process will not fully be exhausted until long after the November 24 election. Mm -hmm. And that is a reason to move swiftly, and we've not seen it from this attorney general. We can't think, oh, well, you know, the next Justice Department under Donald Trump will comply with not firing the special counsel unless there's been misconduct. Anyone who makes that argument is is not to be believed based on what we've seen from the Bill Barr Justice Department, the way he was treated as essentially a private arm of Donald Trump in terms of the private legal counsel. So that's the kind of authoritarian response that we're going to get from Donald Trump if he comes into the Oval Office again. And, and I think that's exactly why there needs to be swift action in holding this lawless former president accountable. There is no question that speed is of the essence, certainly at this point. And that's no matter which uh, Republican president, Republican administration could take over in 2024 or thereafter. But uh, Randall Eliason, what of that? The fact that uh, and, and, and to some extent, John, it kind of feels like it's two separate issues. Yeah, as you know, I agree with you. I would have liked to have seen we've talked about it many times. I would have liked to have seen accountability brought for uh, you know, the, the, the 10 obstruction incidents that uh, Mueller uh, found uh, to his uh, payoff, Trump's payoffs to uh, Stormy Daniels that you referred to. I absolutely would have wanted to see uh, accountability for that. That said, these are two separate issues, and I'm not sure if they can or should be uh, conflated or not. Randall Eliason, what, what is your thought uh, uh, in response to that? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't think those earlier examples really have much to do with the question we're talking about today. I mean, we could do a whole other show on the Mueller report and on the Cohen investigation. I think, in fact, Brad, we've talked about those on your show mm-hmm. in the past. Yeah. And and the complicated, it, it's not as black and white, I would suggest, as, as John is, is making it out. And those are incredibly complicated matters of, of criminal intent, especially when we talk about campaign violence violations. Again, that's a whole other long conversation, but I don't see it as particularly relevant to what we're talking about, but does today. it get at does it get at uh, 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 Garland uh, Garland's credibility well, if he d- hasn't brought? Yeah, 
let me talk about that. I don't think so. I mean, the idea that Garland is somehow treating Trump with kid gloves. So the attorney general approved the first ever search warrant on the home of a sitting ex-president to get those classified documents. They're putting the president and the vice president's senior advisors in the grand jury right now, in some cases even granting them immunity to have them testify about the January 6th events. So the idea that the Garland Justice Department is going easy on Trump in these matters, uh, I think is just not correct. Now, they do take time, Mm -hmm. and I'd suggest that the idea that we should just rush and hurry up and bring charges, in the long run, that's not going to lead to good outcomes in a case like this, because when you're talking about prosecuting a former president, they've got to have this buttoned up every way possible. And so it is going to take some time, and I know there's a lot of uh, frustration or impatience with that, but that's the nature of these cases. And if they don't take the time and do it right, uh, then you know they're going to bring some half-big charges and Trump gets acquitted. Um, so I just uh, I, I don't have a lot of patience with with the criticisms of, uh, from outside, having been inside and having been mm-hmm. doing criminal investigations and grand jury investigations and knowing how little. Uh, of what is actually going on makes it into the public, makes it into the press. We, I don't have a lot of patience with sitting on the outside and saying we should indict now. They're ready to indict. The evidence is overwhelming. What are they waiting for? Um, there's almost always a whole lot more going on. And when you're talking about a former president of the U.S., there's definitely a lot more going on than what we're seeing in the press and on Twitter. Randall, I tend to, uh, I, I, you know, I've been going sort of back and forth on all of this over the past several days and, and reading as much as I can from all sides. I tend to be leading towards uh, uh, your position here that uh, a special counsel is needed, that the uh, statute has been triggered. On the other hand, uh, you know, on the other side of, of, of the matter, sort of supporting John's argument is the notion that the attorney general under the uh, special counsel uh, uh, provision is is still the ultimate authority on whether or not an indictment will be brought at the end. So, you know, Jack Smith, if he decides to file charges, he's got to get permission from the uh, from the attorney general. If he decides against it, he has to share that as well. And I think the attorney general can override him if he wants. So can't one make the case that this is really only a patina of, of fairness for political purposes itself and that it doesn't actually insulate any of this from politics? as as Merrick Garland is is trying to suggest that the special counsel would? So we had a more independent system for a while. It was called the independent councils, I'm sure you recall, Mm -hmm. um, where they were basically their own little attorneys general and didn't have to report to anybody. Right. And that gave us things like Ken Starr and Whitewater uh, that went Mm -hmm. on for eight years, you know, pursuing a president's sex life. Um, Mm -hmm. So this is a compromise. And you're right that ultimately under the regulations, the attorney general still technically has the final say. Practically speaking, if he disagrees with what the independent counsel does, what the special counsel recommends or, you know, shuts, uh, denies any indictments that he wants to bring, he's got to go to Congress and explain that. Mm-hmm. There's tremendous political pressure there will be on Attorney General Garland to abide by whatever the special counsel recommends. So to me given the realities of the alternative, which is someone who's completely independent and accountable to nobody, this special counsel system we have is kind of the best option for dealing with these politically sensitive cases. And I do think it does provide know, Brad, a layer of independence. Yeah. Yeah. Brad, what was astounding about this, right, is that we had a special counsel mm-hmm. investigating Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. 
His name was Robert Mueller. Mm-hmm. He spent two years investigating Donald Trump, and he was never able, ultimately, to get to the bottom of all of it because Donald Trump obstructed right. that investigation in ten separate incidents that Robert Mueller, an esteemed and recognized special counsel, laid out in his report uh, at the I, end of I, that I, investigation. I, so... To use the phrase that Randall's used, I don't have a lot of patience <laughs> with the idea that we're just going to whitewash the Mueller investigation. We're just going to not talk about it anymore because it's in the past somehow, and we're not going to hold Donald Trump accountable. Randall calls it complicated. Well, it wasn't complicated for Robert Mueller to present it in his report, the 10 separate incidents of obstruction of justice. It wasn't complicated for the U.S. Attorney's Office of the Southern District of New York to indict the personal lawyer for Donald Trump, Michael Cohen, for which he then pled guilty and went to federal prison for. I'm not suggesting just some swift, you know, come into office and then the next day throw in a bunch of indictments on things that haven't been investigated. That's not what I'm suggesting. But on the day Mayor Garland assumed the office of attorney general, he had well laid out, well laid out evidence of, defrauding the United States in an indictment that had led to his former Trump's former lawyer going to federal prison, and he had a two-year investigation by a special counsel that had been completed with an extensive report, extensive findings, including 10 incidents of obstruction of justice. So, you know, we can say, oh, that's not what this show is about. We're not talking about that now. Well, answer the question of why Donald Trump has not been held accountable by this attorney general for all of those crimes. And then if you can't answer that question in a credible way, why is it credible to believe that this investigation is pursued at the fullest extent mm. to the law against this president? You know, kids' gloves, maybe, whatever you want to call it, it's not been pursued to the fullest extent, and that's precisely because we have seen this track record of this attorney general from day one and the way he's treated the crimes that were presented to him the moment he took the office. Randall, he's got a point. I mean, we did have this huge special counsel investigation already. He came out with, you know, he, he did not come out with uh, recommendations to prosecute or not. He felt you couldn't because at the time we had the uh, Office of Legal Counsel, uh, you know, memo saying you can't charge a president. So had Mueller said he should be charged, well, then that would have been uh, inappropriately biasing. But once he was gone, once he was out of office, shouldn't, whether it was Merrick Garland or a special counsel, have brought charges initially? And does that lack of, 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 of taking action on that uh, then harm his credibility now? No, I don't think so. I mean, again, I think they're completely separate. Now, I actually have argued in the past that I think it would be good if Merrick Garland or DOJ did issue some kind of a report now explaining what they did with the Mueller report. Um, because I think that is a question that deserves being answered, whether they did an independent evaluation decided not to bring charges, whether they chose not to disturb the decision of the prior attorney general, you know, whatever the reason was, because I do agree that there was some pretty serious allegations in that report, mm-hmm. and it would be good for DOJ to explain what was done with them. On the other hand, putting the allegations in a report is a far cry from proving them beyond a reasonable doubt to unanimous jury, as all prosecutors know. So... The fact that they were in the report doesn't necessarily mean that charges were justified. And again, we can do a whole other show on the Mueller report if you want to. But that separate question, to me, doesn't counteract the fact 
that I don't think there's any evidence that Merrick Garland has been taking it easy on Trump when it comes to January 6th or now to this new documents investigation. In fact, he's taken unprecedented steps uh, in the investigation of the former president. And uh, this appointment of the special counsel is just another one that, again, is not a good thing for Donald Trump. <laughs> and in fact, I, I, it's, there's kind of an irony here because there are a lot of people who are so upset with Merrick Garland, like John, um, you know, for it, and say he's not done enough and he's been too passive and too easy on Trump, you'd think they'd be pleased that now the investigation is going to be in the hands of someone else whose only job is to conduct this investigation well, and, uh, and out of Garland's hands. But, uh, you know, apparently they'd rather have Merrick Garland keep it. Well, so let I'm me, sure. <laughs> and, and uh, let me, because uh, I'm short on time, and I want to make sure that uh, after I take a break here, uh, if John can stick around, because I, I do want to ask about your uh, Section 3, 14th Amendment uh, campaign against Trump. Uh, John, uh, you know, it seems to me that if I, and, and let's just do me a favor for the moment and separate what Garland didn't do regarding Mueller and so forth versus the action taken on Friday. Is it the right thing to, at this point, even if he's late, to have taken uh, to have appointed a special counsel? And, and here's the reason I'm specifically asking. It seems to me that it is important for history. Now, Jack Smith says he's going to be able to work quickly. Uh, in the Mueller case, by the way, he was able to start bringing indictments within about five months, but he started from scratch. Here, Jack Smith is coming in essentially with the uh, same group's uh, who will be doing the uh, investigation is just replacing uh, the, the, the political leadership with Jack Smith. My thought is it's important for history, even if Donald Trump doesn't deserve it, but to be able to show that every measure was taken, even if Trump deserves no such consideration, uh, but for the future, to prevent a future, you know, potentially rogue president or DOJ from going after a political rival rival and being able to, you know, legitimately say, uh, well, they did it against Trump. D doesn't it make a difference here that they are taking that they are giving him every benefit of the doubt, John Boniface, for history? No, no, no? it doesn't. Because because the point I'm trying to make mm -hmm. uh, from the outset of this conversation is the question is, do we trust that this attorney general is pursuing to the fullest extent of the law? any of the investigations that need to be made against this former president holding him accountable? Do we trust? And if the answer is, yes, we do trust, then, of course, you know, this sounds like a great thing. He's appointed a special counsel. He's, he's, he's carrying out what he needs to do to ensure that there's respect and, and, and not an appearance of corruption or anything like that. But if we don't trust that he's been carrying this out up until now in a way that is required the fullest extent of the law with this existential crisis presented by this lawless ex-president running for president again. If we don't trust that, then why are we to believe that this decision to appoint the special counsel was done for those reasons? And I think it may come so down... I, I, my point is, is that, you know, I mean, Randall Rask, what more would we want? Would we want Merrick Garland to keep this investigation? Yes, if it means that he gets indicted tonight, right? I mean, the point... If, if the point of the special counsel... haven't even sorted out the documents is, is yet, John. delay... This action, which very well could be the reason, because they don't want to have anything happen that would cause civil war in the country, or they don't want to, you know, have the, you know, the darts being thrown right at the Justice Department, so they're going to pass it, pass the buck. Then, then that's a different analysis than if the reason is, oh, we trust that Merrick Garland is doing this. I, listen, John, he's following I, the regulations, and that's what we needed for this country. I don't for two years. For two years, he's not hold this 
held this president accountable for those crimes. And Randall doesn't want to talk about the U.S. Attorney's Office, which found that there was a basis to indict Trump's former lawyer. He says, well, the Mueller report was a report. It's not the same as indictment. Well, answer the question of the indictment. All right. I, th- issue okay. for which I can answer I, that. If hang you want. on. Hang on, John. Hang on. Let me let me let Randall get in here because I am going to have to get out. It, it seems like we're not going to find consensus. Randall, uh, your response specifically to that. About the Cohen, Michael Cohen case? Oh, well. Yeah, I didn't think that was our topic. But well, so, his point <laughs> is that we can't trust him. You deal with trust of the attorney general, Randall. Ex- That's the topic. Randall? Yes, I do trust the attorney general. In fact, I know Merrick Garland and know of his reputation. I think he's a terrific attorney general, and I do trust him. And so my, uh, under, my uh, perception is that he's not taking the easy on Trump, that there's a lot going on behind these charging decisions that we don't know. And people who look at it and say, you could have indicted him yesterday, just don't understand all the facts and issues involved in these cases. And they're only basing it on what's out in public versus what's happened in the grand jury and, uh, you know, the other uh, material that a rational prosecutor has to rely on. So it's easy to indict people on Twitter. You know, it's a lot harder to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt to unanimous jury. And these cases are a lot more complicated than they look. And the idea so that... we not getting the answer on a specific indictment that was issued against the former president's lawyer. That was an you actual want to talk about the Michael case. Okay. okay. Law, very quickly, very quickly, guys, because i got to get to a break. Uh, Randall, uh, just speak to that uh, as far as whether that means we should not trust uh, Merrick Garland, because he didn't take action against individual one in the Michael uh, Cohn okay, case. One, we don't know all the facts of evidence that was in the grand jury, things like that. Two, for campaign finance violations, there's a heightened standard of proof. You've got to show willfulness. It's not an ordinary... Uh, level of intent, which means you've got to show that the defendant actually knew that they were breaking the law when they engaged in the campaign finance violation. So Michael Cohen admitted that. He pleaded guilty, that he knew what he was doing was wrong. I suspect the evidentiary hurdle of proving that Trump knew that it was criminal, which is what they would have to do, was uh, impossible because he probably had attorneys telling him that it was okay. And his defense would be, look, my, I don't know this. My campaign people, my lawyers told me this was okay. If that's the evidence, that defeats the heightened standard of intent that you need in a campaign finance case. So, yeah, Cohen agreed to it. He pleaded guilty. But indicting Trump and proving it to a jury when he's going to come in and say his advisors and his lawyers told him it was fine, that's a whole other ballgame. Guys, I have got to wrap this up. I've got to get to a break. John Bonifaz, I want you to stick around because I want to talk about your other campaign. Uh, and, you know, we don't generally do sort of crossfire-style debates on this program. Uh, I, I try to bring on when we do, in the rare times that we do, it's generally people who I agree, who I respect both of the sides of the issue and uh, just want to uh, have it out and so the public can make sense of this all and I think you both bring legitimate uh, uh, points to this uh, to this issue let me let John uh, go I'm sorry let me let Randall go uh, because we had planned to talk about the uh, new campaign by free speech for people to uh, hold Trump accountable via the insurrection disqualification clause in the Constitution's 14th Amendment so John Bonifaz please stick around Randall Eliason sir thank you very much for your time today, as ever. Randall Eliason, Randall D. Eliason, is a former federal prosecutor and a law professor at George Washington University Law School. His work can be found at uh, places like the Washington Post, where he is a regular contributor, and at sidebarsblog.com, where I strongly urge you to sign up for his newsletter. Uh, Randall, sir, thank you very much. I hope to talk to you soon. Did I lose Randall? Okay. Quick break. And we are back. John, can you stick around for another minute or two? 
I'm happy to. Thank Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Quick break, and we're back with John Bonifaz on that question right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Catch me if you can. Try to catch me if you can. Yeah. Working on it. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Last week, ABC News reported as Donald Trump announced Tuesday that he's running again for the White House. Two groups are already working behind the scenes to mount a national push to get election officials to stop him from being on the ballot at all because of January 6th. Free Speech for People and Mi Familia Vota are launching a campaign via TrumpIsDisqualified.org. TrumpIsDisqualified.org to urge secretaries of state and other chief election officials to <clears throat> excuse me, to bar the former president from running for office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, known as the Disqualification Clause. That uh, clause blocks any person from holding federal office who has taken an oath to protect the Constitution, including a member of Congress or, yes, a president of the United States who has then engaged in insurrection against the U.S. or given aid or comfort to its enemies. Free speech for people previously filed challenges against other uh, Republicans like Congressman Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene, arguing their actions around January 6th and support for overturning the 2020 election uh, uh, amounted to a disqualifying behavior. Neither Cawthorn nor Green participated directly in the rioting, though Cawthorn spoke at a Trump rally beforehand. Green has said that she was a, quote, victim along with other lawmakers. But now Free Speech for People says it intends to file similar legal challenges against Donald Trump. They are now urging secretaries of state and chief election officials across the country to follow the mandate of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and bar Trump from any future ballot, arguing that, uh, quote, because of his role in inciting, encouraging and supporting the insurrection, Trump is constitutionally ineligible for any future run for office. Still here with us is John Boniface. He's the co-founder and president of FreeSpeechForPeople.org, leading uh, with this petition campaign. Uh, John, uh, thank you for sticking around. If you were unable to remove Madison Cawthorn from the ballot or Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, in Georgia. Why will it be any easier to disqualify Donald Trump as a presidential candidate uh, under 14.3? Well, Donald Trump is the insider in chief. Uh, he's the insurrectionist mm-hmm. who led this insurrection. And he, more than anyone else, needs to be held accountable under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. This critical constitutional provision is designed to protect our republic, and it makes clear that anyone who takes an oath of office, 
to uphold the Constitution and then turns around and engages in insurrection is forever barred from holding public office again. The evidence is overwhelming that Donald Trump both incited this insurrection mm-hmm. and encouraged it, and the House Select Committee has laid that out for the public to see. Uh, and so every Secretary of State, every chief election official in the country whose duty it is to ensure that people who are appearing on their state ballots comply with the requirements of that office under the Constitution, now have a duty to bar Donald Trump from the ballot because he is disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And yet, last week, um, David uh, Cicilline, the uh, Democrat from Rhode Island congressman, uh, said that he wanted to put forward legislation that would bar Trump from serving under the 14th Amendment, quote, for leading an insurrection against the U.S. Uh, this makes me wonder, and I don't know, you know, if, if there's even a possibility that could pass something like this while the Democrats are still in charge of the House. But if Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing, in other words, it doesn't require a law to put it into action, uh, why is, uh, are you familiar with Cicilline's proposal and, and why would such a law be necessary here? Uh, such a law is not necessary. I'm familiar with what Representative Cicilline has put forward. And while it would be arguably a good thing for Congress to join in in making clear that secretaries of state have that responsibility and that he is disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, there's no requirement whatsoever that there must be first a congressional resolution in order for the mandate of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to be followed by chief election officials. Similarly, there's no requirement of a criminal conviction related to our last conversation. Mm -hmm. There may or may not be an indictment of Donald Trump with respect to his role in the insurrection. That's a separate question entirely from whether or not he is barred from the ballot under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. You have secretaries of state like Secretary of State Galvin of Massachusetts, and my understanding, Secretary of Commonwealth uh, of, of Pennsylvania, who are arguing that there is a requirement of a criminal conviction, but two different judges have looked at this question. Our judge in the Green case, Marjorie Taylor Green case in Georgia, and the judge in the New Mexico case recently that was led by Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, which ultimately resulted in the removal of a county commissioner who had been involved in the insurrection. Mm -hmm. And both judges looked at this question and made clear that no criminal conviction is required. Uh, so, you know, Representative Cicilline's resolution is, is not unhelpful. It's helpful to have him moving this forward, but it's not a requirement in order for secretaries of state to act. Let me point folks towards your uh, your new campaign, TrumpIsDisqualified.org, where you can both get more information on this. And I believe you can sign a petition calling on the 50 secretaries of state or chief election officials in each state to bar Donald Trump from the uh, from the ballot in 2024. That's if he actually uh, runs. And we'll see about that. John, I got to get out. Uh, my thanks uh, for all you do. You can find his work, of course, at Free Speech for people.org. You can find them on the Twitters as long as Twitter is still around at FSFP. And you can find John personally on the Twitters at John Boniface. Thank you, sir. And have a wonderful Thanksgiving, my friend. Thank you. You too, Brad. Thank you, sir. Okay, we have got to get out here shortly. Desi Doyen, I had hoped to speak more about the U.N. conference uh, following uh, uh, the uh, COP27 agreement over the weekend. It is a landmark agreement that they did make yes. regarding funding for 
uh, for poor countries, developing countries from rich countries like us, since the poor countries, the developing countries have to bear the brunt of uh, climate change, the climate emergency at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a very big deal. The uh, creation of this loss and damage facility, which is what they call this program, this initiative for rich countries to pay poor countries. Um because as you mentioned before, developing nations have contributed little to causing the climate crisis and rich nations have gotten rich off of using yep. fossil fuels. And so now developing nations are fighting to uh, both adapt to the disasters that they're already seeing and the losses and damages from the disasters that they're already seeing. And they're also asking for funding to help them both uh, cross over and, uh, and skip over the fossil fuel development phase. So it's a big deal. They got the deal on the disaster phones, but on the disaster funding, but they did not get a deal on ratcheting up the emissions targets, and they did not get a deal on phasing out or phasing down all fossil fuels. So that's that's kind of where it is right now. There, uh, Nonetheless, it is a big deal. I know they've been working yeah. on this for decades, and they finally got it. And I just wanted to uh, make sure to get that in because we're standing down after today's show for the uh, Thanksgiving holiday. You wouldn't be able to cover it on our usual Green News report or right. here on the broadcast. So I just sort of wanted to shoehorn that in. So let me take this opportunity, by the way, to thank all of you you for your support over this past very difficult year. Yes, un- it was another one, uh, but we couldn't do any of it without your support and your encouragement. So thank you very much for that. My thanks as well to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our uh, board operator today, Yout Orozco, and to my two guests, John Bonifaz of Free Speech for People and Randall Eliason of Sidebar's blog. All right, that's it. We're uh, just about out of here. You can drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, as long as it's still there, you will find me at the TheBradBlog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, whenever that may be, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1942. That was the day the completion of the Alaskan Highway, or ELCAN, was celebrated at Soldier Summit. There had been proposals for a highway connecting the United States to Alaska since the early 1920s. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Roosevelt moved quickly to organize its approval and construction. By March 1942, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers broke ground on the $138 million project. More than 10,000 troops were assigned to highway construction. Over a third were comprised of newly formed black regiments. Thousands of pieces of construction equipment were moved through the railroads, including steam shovels, blade graders, tractors, trucks, bulldozers, snowplows, cranes, and generators. In a matter of eight months, workers carved out 1,700 miles of road between Dawson Creek, British Columbia, through the Yukon to Delta Junction in Alaska, under the most treacherous environmental conditions. Workers arrived in wintry Dawson Creek, pitching their sleeping quarters in snowdrifts. 
By spring, workers battled flooding rivers, equipment sinking into thick mud, and fears of Japanese bombers. By summer, mosquitoes, dubbed bush bombers, were so bad, workers had to eat under netting. Black workers also battled relentless racism. The army was still segregated. Black troops faced racial presumptions about their capacity to carry out hard labor. They were determined to break down stereotypes. By fall, white and black bulldozer drivers coordinating the work together were celebrated in the pages of the Army's Yank Magazine, Time, and the New York Times. Some historians consider the integrated work crews a factor in President Truman's later move to desegregate the armed forces. According to the New York Times, the Federal Highway Administration calls the Alcon the road to civil rights. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.